Psalm 94 says this, who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Lord, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for being a love that we can find refuge in. That when our feet are slipping, Lord, we can look to your steadfast love to hold us, to sustain us, to empower us. Lord, thank you for this love. You are greater. 
all my sin. Your love is stronger to rescue from where I've been. You're my only hope, my Savior, my defense. You are greater. Sing that again. You are greater. You are great. All my sin, your love is stronger to rescue from where I've been. You're my only hope, my Savior, my defense. You are
There is power in your name. There is power in your name. In the name of Jesus, we believe you are. There is power in your name. There is power in your name. You are greater. You are greater. There is power in your name. There is power in your name. Take a moment to sit for a second. Sometimes we can come in and sing through songs that have lots of truth in them that we would intellectually agree with and believe, but that we don't let really attach to the reality of our lives, to apply to situations that are going on in our life. And so I just thought it would be good for us this morning, had, had the sense during the first service to do this similar kind of thing, and so we're going to do this again, um, just to, to try to focus our attention on some of these lyrics that we just got finished singing, but to try to, to let the Lord apply them to whatever's going on in your life right now. So we just got finished singing, you are greater than all my sin. So maybe you've come in this week to service and sin has had its way in your life. You have given in to temptation. You have chosen to disobey God in whatever category, lots of categories, that that's possible for us to do that. So maybe this morning you're here and you're aware of the greatness of your sin. God wants to remind you that his love is greater than your sin. We sang your love is stronger. So maybe there are desires for things that are very strong in your heart, or maybe there, there are temptations to doubt God's goodness that are very strong. Maybe there are situations that are going on and it's hard to see how this situation is gonna resolve itself and it's very strong to disbelieve in God's faithfulness. I think God would want to say his love is stronger than any of those things that you might be experiencing. 
We sang to rescue. Your love is, you're greater to rescue from where I've been. Maybe you've been in a season lately, discouragement or despair. Maybe you've felt your faith being weak or you've been in relational difficulty with the people around you. Maybe you're confused about what the future is going to look like for you. And all you can be aware of is just where you've been, this place you've been. God, I think, wants to remind us that he's greater than where we've been. He can rescue you us, rescue us out of where we have been. We sang, you're my only hope, my savior, my defense. These are true things about who God is. So I want us to take some time just to bow our heads and confess to the Lord if any of these things or maybe other things that I didn't specify. Maybe there are places in your life where you're just aware of the greatness of some other thing besides the greatness of God. Let's confess that to him. So let's bow our heads. Let's, let's talk to the Lord individually. Lord, Lord, we confess to you, Lord. God, that when we look out at our lives and in whatever circumstance it is that we're bringing before you right now, we see that circumstance as great. Not because we think it's great, but because we're living as though it's great. We're giving it greatness. We're letting it take up space in our lives. We're, we're letting it look like it is overshadowing anything that you promise, Lord. And so we have made it into a great thing, a thing that's greater than you. Lord, and so we confess confess to you, Lord, that we believe that you are greater, that your love is greater, that your peace is greater, that your forgiveness is greater, that your power is greater. Lord, so would you, would you bring faith to us as we consider this love, this love that was poured into our hearts that we didn't deserve, Lord. Lord, and we, and we confess our hope in you. We want to hope in your love. Let's sing this chorus again. You are greater than all my sin. Your love is stronger to rescue from where I've been. You're my only my Savior, my defense, you are greater, you are greater than all my sin, your love is stronger to rescue from where I've been, you're my only hope, my Savior, my defense. You are great. Sing that one more time. Stand together. You are greater. You are greater than all my sin. All my sin. Your love is stronger to rescue from where I've been. You're my only hope, my Savior, my defense. You are greater. You're my only hope. You're my only hope, my Savior, my defense. 
You are greater. You're my only hope. You're my only hope. My Savior, my defense. You are greater. Like you, there is no other, no other Lord. True delight is found in you alone. We believe that in you alone. Your grace, a well too deep to fathom. Your love exceeds the heavens reach. Your truth. A fount of perfect wisdom, my highest good and my unending need. Oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Strong defender of my weary heart, we come to you, my sword to fight the cruel deceiver, and my shield against his hateful darts. My song when enemies surround me. Look to you, my. Savior of my ruined life. It's true. My guilt and cross laid on your shoulders. In my place, you suffered, bled, and died. You rose the grave and death are conquered. Yes. You broke my heart. Sin and shame, sing it again, you rose, you rose, the grave and death are conquered, you broke my bonds of sin and shame, you rose, you rose, the grave. 
Lord, this is our prayer, God, that we would bring glory to your name all our days. God, that in seasons of rejoicing and plenty and, and awareness of your blessing, Lord, that we bring glory to your name. And even in seasons where enemies surround us and we feel fiery darts flying at us, Lord, that you and your glory would be the song that's in our mouths, seeking to give you praise, seeking to seek you as a treasure, being ever aware of your love for us, Lord, and reminding ourselves of this. Lord, so, so help us take a step again today in the fight of the Christian faith. Lord, another step that might be a step into some good thing that we feel or into some unknown scary thing, Lord, but a step that's in faith, looking to you, our great treasure, our rock, our redeemer, the one whose steadfast love is a fortress for us. Lord, receive our praise, we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Amen. Grateful for God's care. Grateful to be experiencing it together with all of you. Um, welcome to those of you who are joining us this morning and a special welcome to those in our family room upstairs and anybody tuning in online. Uh, my name is Evan for our guests. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're visiting today um, or over the past couple of weeks and, and haven't gotten a chance to, to meet one of the pastors, we'd love to get to connect with you after the service. And so if you wouldn't mind just hanging around for a moment for us to hear your story and find out how we can be best caring for you uh, in these days. Um, well, the year 2020 has become something of a meme in our culture, and I'm sure it'll have that status for, for years to come. It just seems another headline after another uh, hits of uh, some news or trouble or event, and so we're finding out now that this is likely to be a, a more significant than normal hurricane season. I found out today that uh, salmonella has apparently infected all of our onions, and uh, that, that's news that'll make you tear up. Uh, I would say that, but I don't make those kinds of jokes. Um, but, you know, just not really sure what's going to come next in this adventure of a year. Uh, but one of the questions we often get as pastors is, is does, this, does this mean that we're living in the last days? It just seems like another one of the, the seals of revelation have been opened up and, and unleashed upon, upon the world. But here's the help that God's word gives us, because it does describe the, the days that we're living in as part of the last days. And it gives us guidelines, it gives us insight, it gives us strategy for navigating the days that we're in. And, and this applies to our, our giving as well, to how we see finances and the, the priorities of the kingdom in how we use the resources God has given us. And so Paul writes this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he's describing what's it like to live in the last days. And he says this in verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, and let, let's not stop listening after he describes us like that, because if we're in this room, if we're living in, in, in the first world, that's, that's us, right? As the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy 
They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So in in the midst of whatever comes our way, this world and this life, we would be people whose confidence and hope is set on God, and, and therefore we're not gripping tightly to our finances and the resources that he's provided, but we're, we're able to be generous toward his purposes and to share what we have and to be rich in good works and, and to use our finances to prioritize the work of his kingdom. And, and the amazing thing about that, what he says here is, we store up for ourselves, this is, this is Jesus' word, right? Treasures in heaven. We get to shape our experience in eternity based on how we are living in troubling days here and now. And that's assurance for us and, and motivation uh, to give. And uh, there are a variety of ways for you to do that today. We've got offering boxes at the back of the room that you can use either right now or at the end of the service uh, you can give online uh, on our website or through our, our app as well. There are a few ways that are listed on the screen here. But let's go to God in prayer. God, thank you for your word that equips us, that helps us. Lord, it would be nice if we had some kind of manual for every scenario and circumstance that would affect us, that would show up in the news and there were some index that we could turn to and find out what do we need to do in this moment? What do we need to do or say or respond? But God, you, you've given us something so much more helpful than that. Lord, you've, you've helped frame our expectations for the days that we live in. But God, you've given us hope. You've given us your presence. You've given us access to you so that we don't have to set our minds or our security on anything that is described as being uncertain and passing away. God, as we give toward your kingdom, Lord, we, we get to live in the joy of a certain future and get to be participants in taking shape of what that will be as we store up treasure in heaven. God, thank you for the gift of being in relationship with you and being used by you in your kingdom. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the midst of life right now, uh, we, we need the, the benefit and the blessing of the fellowship of the body. That's always the case. Uh, we just need the benefit of other people's perspectives. We need, we need our ideas to be shaved off the edges of them by other people. We need their prayers. We need others shouldering the burdens that we're walking through. Um, and, and yet, th- these are times, you know, characterized in many ways still by social distance. And so if it ever was, was the case where Sunday morning doesn't really provide an environment to do that, it's more so now where we shuffle you out through stanchions on your way out wearing your mask. Um, and so we, we've got to be intentional to, to find places where we can fellowship. And, and our small group ministry is a, is a means of, of doing that. And, and it's about to kick off again. Uh, some small groups have been meeting over the summer, but typically they 
they, they take a break in the summer and then they launch again in the fall. And so if you've never been in a small group at Lakeview, it's a great time to jump in. Uh, they'll be starting up in a couple of weeks and you can sign up now for a group uh, on our website or an, if you open up the LCC app on the Sunday morning tab, there's a spot there you can click for, for small group information. And we've got uh, on the little tables that have your notes for today, there's a booklet that has the information about the small groups. And, and these are going to meet in a variety of ways. They meet on different nights of the week um, in different locations. Some are going to be doing uh, Zoom only, and so they're going to be dialing in by doing a video meeting. Uh, some will be meeting here at the church building in a room upstairs where we can kind of separate out seating and you can still have a, a conversation with a little bit of a, of a distance involved. Uh, some are going to be meeting in homes again, and others will do a kind of a hybrid uh, format where some people are in person and they video in others who aren't able to be there uh, in person. And so just different ways for you to, to gather safely and comfortably, but we hope that you gather. We hope that you would um, be led by God to consider who are the people that you're going to be building relationships with and, and, and doing life with and investing in the days ahead, but also just being sustained in faith in the days that we are in uh, right now. Uh, one other thing to highlight, uh, if, you're, if you're serving currently on the AV team, uh, special thanks to you, by the way, because we've been putting you guys to, to work in a season where a lot of other opportunities to serve aren't as present. Uh, these guys have just been doing an excellent job. Mr. Bob Officer has been showing up during the week, helping us do additional things as well. Uh, and so we want to have a, a lunch to thank you and to kind of inform you on ways to serve uh, after the service next Sunday. So if you signed up to help recently or you've been a part of the team, stick around uh, in room 200 uh, for lunch and for a meeting for that. All right, well, please welcome up Pastor Ronald to our pulpit. You can applaud the welcome, yes. <laughs> Thank you, Evan. Well, good morning, church. Um, it seems that it was the case with the first service. I'm not entirely sure what the numbers of attendance are, but... The first service seemed um, to have more people than, than I've noticed over the past weeks, and this one does as well. So that means more of you guys are coming out, and it's just, you look great. It's just exciting to see us return to some level of, of normalcy around here. Well, today we, we, we kind of say goodbye to, to a, a good friend, um, a passage of scripture that we've enjoyed spending uh, some time in, um, pa Pastor Keith felt led some, um, several weeks ago to spend dedicated time in the First Corinthians series uh, in First Corinthians 13. And uh, we've just uh, deeply benefited from that section of scripture. Um, and the sermon series titled A Love Story has been the product of that. And it's just been a rich time. I hope that you have enjoyed your time in First Corinthians 13. I hope that those truths have just impressed, uh, God's impressed uh, uh, those truths in your heart. And, and let me go ahead and apologize if, if um, that ruined it for you. And maybe now you regret that you read it at your wedding because maybe it says something it doesn't or you're confused or whatnot. But at any rate, it was a wonderful time. Uh, and today being the last sermon in this series, um, I figured let's, let's read the whole thing in context and, and allow this passage in its entirety to speak to us again. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Let me read. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, and I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, 
And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, But then, face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray together. Father, you spoke to your disciples through Christ and Jesus. You told them you were the good shepherd. You know your sheep and your sheep know you. And you call your sheep here and they follow. So great shepherd, speak to us today and help us follow you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So in speaking of the end of things, there was a a phrase that came to the forefront of my mind this week as I prepared, and you may have encountered this phrase before. You may have used this phrase before. Someone may have tried to help you um, by sharing this phrase with you before. And the phrase is, all good things must come to an end. And naturally, being someone who likes to know what things mean, I asked myself, well, what does that mean? I mean, it sounds so obvious. It sounds so deep and inspirational. But what does it mean? And so whenever I have a question, I turn to the all-knowing Google search engine and I ask Google, Google, what does all good things must come to an end? What does all good things must come to an end mean? And this is what Google told me. It means, it's a proverb that means nothing lasts forever. Well, duh. Um, All things and situations are temporary or happiness is fleeting. It may be used to express regret. When something that brings you happiness ends. Immediately, I I figured, well, that's a really unhelpful definition. Um, It's not a good definition. Um, It's not a good thing to say. It's unhelpful. Imagine someone you love dearly giving you some pretty devastating news about their life. Maybe they inform you they have terminal cancer. Or maybe they inform you the job they worked for the past 20 years for and they've been at for one day, they were fired, and you come and you put your arm around their shoulder and say, well, you know, all good things must come to an end. It's very unhelpful. 
It's also not true. It's also false. Here are four things that never come to an end. The first, not surprisingly, is God himself. God is eternal. He is the source of all good gift. He is the ultimate good, and he is from everlasting to everlasting. Um, God's word. The Bible says the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Surprisingly, you and I don't end. Now, we die, but our existence, according to the Bible, doesn't end. We go from this life to the next. Um, And this passage that we're looking at today, starting in verse 8, starts with love never ends. And so as we've looked at the development of love, as we've um, just been deeply grateful and indebted to, to you, Keith, thank you, man, for hearing from the Spirit, hearing from God, and just guiding us in such a rich passage. Um, we, we now end with this statement, um, and we see the spiritual supremacy of love. So look with me in verse 8 again. Verse 8 says, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. So earlier in the chapter, after defining love, Paul is going to do something in this section of this passage. And he's going to go back to the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 to to continue developing uh, an idea, a comparing and a connecting of love with spiritual gifts. And so he begins the chapter by saying, you know, um, uh, love never ends. But as for prophecies, well, they do. Um, Love never ends. But as for tongues, well, they, they do. Love never ends, but as for knowledge, it, it, it will. The gift of knowledge will end. What is Paul trying to do in this section? A helpful quote from an excerpt, a uh, previous sermon that Keith preached. 1 Corinthians 13, what, what, what is it seeking to accomplish? What is the writer's audience and aim? 1 Corinthians 13 is a troubleshooting passage. It's trying to fix love for the Corinthians. It is seeking to equip us. Paul is seeking to help the Corinthians, and by extension, the LCC community here, live the Christian life. And I agree with Keith 100%, but if I may just slightly modify and emphasize an aspect of what Paul is doing, he, he, he's not fixing love for them. He's fixing love in them. You see, love is not what's broken. They are. So Paul is going to go about the task of fixing the Corinthians, of fixing them. It's not not somehow love got broken inside them. They themselves are broken and they need to be fixed. So he's going to do so by grabbing onto something that they value. Something that they cherish. Something that they feel good about. He's going to grab spiritual gifts. And what the connection ultimately is meant to do is, is again, fix them. This passage is not primarily an argument for the spiritual gifts or against the spiritual gifts. This passage serves as an example of Paul trying to help the Corinthians live out the Christian life by pointing out their weaknesses. So look back at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 13 with me. 
Verse 1 says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. So Paul is connecting love and spiritual gifts. And as a result, we notice something about the spiritual gifts. Take, for example, tongues. He features the gift of tongues. The gift of tongues is supposed to be this deep, beautiful exchange with, with God in some way that, that produces language that is, is not understandable. And it's just this, this intense, euphoric spiritual interaction between you and the living God. But without love, it, it's, it's actually annoying. It, it's, it's counterproductive. It, it's meant to elicit this, this response of desire for the Lord. But without love, it becomes like, like hitting those cymbals on the drums really loud. Just annoying. He features knowledge, the, 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 the gift of knowledge and understanding all mysteries. Can you imagine, can you imagine understanding the meaning of life? Can you imagine understanding the meaning and knowing the meaning and purpose of your life? Can you imagine knowing that? Well, according to Paul, without love, it's meaningless. He picks up the gift of faith and, and he, he hearkens back to something Jesus told his disciples. You might remember this interaction where Jesus tells them, if your faith were as a tiny grain of mustard seed, you'd be able to tell that big old mountain to dive into that lake, right? Do, do y'all remember that? Well, he features that there and he says, you could be able to do that, but without love, that action is some impressive, but cheap, meaningless parlor trick. You're, you're, you're some sort of magician of some kind. It doesn't matter. It's empty. It's empty of meaning and purpose. Is that me, guys? So wh- wh- what's the connection Well, simply put, the entire pantheon of spiritual gifts, all of them, must operate through love. And I'm defining love here. I'm taking the content of the past six or seven weeks of sermons, and I'm I'm cramming them into this this intense, concentrated pill. And every time I use the word love in in this sermon, I'm referring to all of that behind me. So... Um, you, you may be helped by going back home and watching, you know, binge watching all these sermons. If, you, if you're home, you can actually start that now. You could click pause right now and watch four or five sermons and then get back to this one. But I'm, 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 all those implications and definitions of love that we've been exposed to in the past six, seven weeks, I'm referring to those when I use the word love. Um, listen to this quote by Craig Blomberg. He says, love is the cardinal virtue, the first on the list of the fruit of the spirit which must be present with all the gifts if they are to be used in ways that please God and have eternal value. The key to understanding chapter 13, then, is to keep it in its context. Whatever inspiration it may have as a self-contained poem or hymn to love, Paul intended it to be used to help solve the specific problem of the destructive manner in which the Corinthians were using the spiritual gifts. So a moment of clarification is necessary here. Paul is not saying you compare love and you, and you connect love with the spiritual gifts, you can develop certain conclusions. So I'm going to address that right now. Paul is not saying that because love never ends and the gifts do, and because the gifts are emptied of their power without love, and the end of the chapter quite literally says that love is the greatest, 
Paul is not saying that we should therefore abandon the gifts, prefer love over them, and throw away the gifts because all we need is love. That is not what Paul is saying, and that is not what I am saying either. That's not the point of this sermon or of this text, but keep that lodged in your mind because that's going to help you see where we're going. But this discussion of spiritual gifts begins all the way back in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul says in chapter 12, verse 1, Now concerning the spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. There are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of services, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. If you are a charismatic believer, underline that phrase of that verse in your Bible. So, um, oh, and w- w- one more thing. If you're new to this topic of gifts, let me encourage you, and you want questions in terms of what they are, how they operate, details, this, uh, um, go to our website, look up a sermon on 1 Corinthians 12. We've preached on that. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14 picks this idea back up, so it gives, gives more details. So I'm assuming you either know what they are or you will be taught what they are because um, I don't have time to do everything I'd like to do. But um, um, what is the purpose of the gifts? Bottom line from this passage, from uh, 1 Corinthians 12, the purpose of the gifts are for the common good. The gifts are not intended for personal good. The gifts serve the function of someone other than the one receiving them. Their destination is not the single recipient. Their destination is the community of believers that that recipient is found in. They're not meant for you. They're meant for y'all. That's what the gifts are for. That's their principle. And so how, 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 do, how do the spiritual gifts get guided? What's the spiritual GPS of the gifts? Their source is God. The Holy Spirit gives them. He gives them to one person, and that person then shares them for the benefit of the common good. Right? That, that transaction, how, how, how is that done? But what is the guiding principle that, that gives that, that, the clarity and empowerment and, 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 and efficiency of the gifts? What this chapter is about. Love. The purpose of, this is in your outline, the purpose of comparing and connecting the spiritual gifts to love is not to show that love is better than the spiritual gifts. It may very well be. Nor is it to show that love is to be preferred and sought in replacement of the gifts. The purpose is to illustrate just how blind they are to the gravity of their error. They can't see what they have in love and they can't see how they are abusing the gifts. Not because they're doing something weird with them, but because they're using them without love. Remember, Paul is trying to fix them. This is the nature of this letter and all the letters in the New Testament. Paul didn't have a study like we do here. He didn't have an office with shelves and books that he could, he could meander around and rub his chin and say, I wonder what I'm going to preach on next Sunday. That's not how these letters work. These letters w- w- worked in community. Paul is walking through life, doing uh, God's will for his life, and, and issues show up, and he connects the truths of, of Christ given to him by the Holy Spirit to, the, to what, what a church is doing. And so, spiritual gifts is featured in this passage because it was featured in this church. 
and their screw-ups as a church are connected to how they use the spiritual gifts. Therefore, for Paul to fix them, guess what he has to touch? The spiritual gifts. It's, it's not the spiritual gifts that need adjusting, it's them. But he's going to use the spiritual gifts to reveal their depravity, but also to show them a better way. See, these were people who did church well. These were, these were exciting Christians to be around. I mean, you went to, uh, you know, uh, church in Corinth back in the day and, and I mean, woof, you encountered gift of prophecy, you encountered people speaking in tongues. You, 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 if you were lucky one Sunday, you may encounter someone casting out a demon. Those were exciting Sundays in Corinth and, and miracles here, miracles there and healing here and healing there. It was a place to be, man. There's spirit just all over the place. Awesome place to be. However, they were incomplete. They weren't doing it right. And they were incomplete. Let me illustrate it this way. Imagine a father boasting about being a great provider for his family. So he's a dad who has four kids, a wife. And he's proud of the fact that he brings home the bacon. Puts food on the table, works hard. Now imagine that, that dad keeping all the food he's purchased in the basement. And only he has access to the food. Is that weird to you? Is that incomplete to you? Is that bad to you? Well, of course. Welcome to Corinth. Imagine a world-renowned trauma surgeon at a prestigious hospital. This lady wants the most intense uh, ER moments of surgery where people will die in seven seconds if she doesn't go to work at them. So she's world-renowned trauma surgeon, and she boasted about wanting to make a difference in the world by the medical knowledge that she wanted to pursue and gain. Now, imagine her neglecting to take care of her son's sprained ankle at home, because after all, her nanny, who's a nurse, I mean, that's, that's what the inferior people do, right? That's an inferior medical thing. It's not that important. I need a trauma. I mean, if his leg were kind of hanging off his, yeah, I got to take that, but it's just a sprain. That's not a big deal. That's not impressive. I don't get to show myself off in that. Is that wicked? Is that evil? Does that bug you? Welcome to Corinth. Imagine a Christian, a believer who comes to church and he wins or he inherits $100 million, you know, and somehow... The Nigerian prince offering $100 million was actually a real thing. And he responded to that email that you've gotten. And he gets $100 million. And he comes to church on a Sunday. And then another brother from the church comes to him and says, Dude, got fired, man. Got sued. I lost all my money. Help me. And imagine that friend who's received $100 million by responding to an email by a Nigerian prince. Tell his Christian friend, I'll pray for you. And then walk away. What does that feel like to you? Well, that is what Paul felt like when he went and heard about the Corinthians and their use of the gifts. The Corinthians boasted about being spiritual. They boasted about their spiritual gifts and, and the massive reality in, in their life where, where they had developed these spiritual uh, um, uh, categories and a spiritual elitism where, where it was characterized by, by a caste system. You were a better Christian, a more important Christian, a more influential Christian, a Christian that deserved more because you had a certain gift 
if you could prophesy, if you could speak in tongues, if you had one of these revelatory knowledge gifts, you were better than those other people who didn't. And that was life in the, the church of Corinth. So that's what Paul's trying to fix. Quick encouragement for you, church. What I've encountered here at this church is the opposite of what I would have encountered at Corinth. See, I'm someone who comes from a background where spiritual gifts was something that, that I wasn't really brought up in or taught in. Or, or So in some ways, I'm kind of a baby in some of these uh, uh, public uh, expressions of them. But there are, at any given Sunday, you'll have a brother share a word. There's, there's manifestations of the spiritual gifts here in Lakeview, and it's a glorious thing to behold. But I, I've never sensed that spiritual elitism from you guys. As someone new in the spiritual gift journey, I've sensed a humility. I've sensed a desire to bless the church for the common good with the gifts that God continues to give us. I've, I've never been mocked for, well, that's not true. Um, I, I, I have been mocked. See, one among you has the spiritual gift of sarcasm. And, uh, and he, um, he, he has employed that gift on my expense. But he's also been just a, a loving man that I want to continue to serve with and under. So that's Keith, by the way. He's been the mocker. Um, but I love that man. Um, so quick, quick application. Quick application. As you evaluate your life at LCC... Would you say, as you look at your time at LCC, maybe you've been here for a year, maybe you've been here for 10 years. As you look at your life, your ministry, your, 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 your kingdom work here at LCC, do you think you would be characterized as being a spiritual storage unit or a spiritual distribution center? If you're to take account of the gifts that God has given you, the talents and the abilities and the callings to use what God has given you for the benefit of the church, how are you handling that? Would you, would you consider yourself, I'm really more like a spiritual storage unit. What do you do with storage units? You put stuff in there and then what do you do? You leave it there. You don't use it. It just stays there. Would you be characterized by that? Or would you be characterized by being a spiritual distribution center? What's the feature thing about distribution centers? They're always full, but they're always empty, right? Stuff keeps coming in, delivered. Keep coming in, delivered. Keep coming in, delivered. Keep coming in, delivered. Where do you think you would be? Good question for you to take in prayer, ask the Lord to show you and seek his wisdom through that. But I hope that you see two things about 1 Corinthians 13. And this is important because 1 Corinthians 13, number one, is not a distraction. But Paul Paul was writing about spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12. And 1 Corinthians 12 literally ends with earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 14 literally begins with earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Both of those sections of scripture speak in detailed fashion about spiritual gifts. And 1 Corinthians 13 talks about love. This is intentional. This is on purpose. But Paul doesn't all of a sudden, you know, have a, a moment of euphoria where he's trying to decipher spiritual gifts. And then he goes, but love. And then goes off on this wild tangent like we preachers tend to do. And then says, oh, sorry, uh, back to spiritual gifts. That is not what's happening. These three chapters are connected. Paul's has an intent that he wants to show. The second thing, and that intent is that Paul wants to 
He goes into this magnificent song about love. What, 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 why? What, why does Paul extend this argument of gifts into an expression and a definition and a glorious thinking and musing on love? Because he knows what that is going to do in them and for them. He's trying to fix them, remember. The effect of this passage is meant to take their eyes off what they can do now... And place it on what they will be able to do in the future and should already be doing. The effect of this passage is to, is to take their offs of what they can experience now. Not just do, experience. Take their eyes off of that and place it on what they will be able to experience. But can currently experience also. Speaking of love will take their eyes off of themselves and lift them up. Paul is trying to do this. Hey, Corinthians, stop looking at the floor. Look to the heavens. That's what Paul is trying to do. And the effect of that is utterly going to transform the conversation about spiritual gifts for them and for us. Quick application question for you. To pray through this week, do you tend to associate the common good of the church with yourself or with others? When you go to define what is the common good for the church, what, what, what lens do you see that through? What is the common good for the church? Do you start with me, you, or do you begin with the church? How do you see yourself in that paradigm? Or to put it another way, in your walk as a Christian in the life of this church, do you tend to prefer, cheer on, endorse, campaign for, and find greater value in church practices, ministries, ideas, and experiences that you want to do, that you like to do, that you're good at, or that you're currently doing at the expense of other practices and ministries and ideas and experiences that you don't want to do, that you don't like to do, that you're not good at, or that you don't have, even when these practices are showing fruit for the common good. Questions for you to take home to the Lord and pray through these and just ask the Lord to show insight there. This is what Paul, by the way, is trying to do when he enters into chapter 13. He enters into chapter 13 this way. He says, I will show you a still more excellent way. And off he goes. So let's consider the end of chapter 13 and what that excellent way is. The supreme spiritual way of love. Verse 9. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall fully know, even as I have been fully known. I remember being a young Christian um, and connecting with 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, um, hearing it read at weddings, and uh, and I even I even uh, I was like maybe nine or ten years old, and I wrote a love letter to a girl in my church, and I and I ended it with First Corinthians thirteen. Oh, that's just a cool, suave thing to do, because uh, because it just kind of makes sense, you know. Uh, love is patient, love is kind. Uh, 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 it's not this, but then when you start with verse nine, it just kind of gets. Wait, what? Have y'all ever had that experience? 
where all of a sudden, 1 Corinthians verses 4 through 7 make immediate sense. But then we start talking about dimly, dimly mirrors and, and face to face and, and, uh, and, you know, and in part and, and childhood and somehow puberty walks into the conversation. Like, what, 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 have you all ever struggled with this passage of scripture? Well, I have. And, um, and it's amazing what it actually means. In these three verses, Paul highlights something important about the nature of love and the nature of spiritual gifts. Again, he's not letting this go because this is where they live. This is their issue. Their life as believers hinges around spiritual gifts. And so Paul is going to address that. If Paul, if Paul, I'm going to fix one thing, I'm going to fix that. And that's going to have an impact on everything else. So here's the, connect, here's the nature of love versus the nature of spiritual gifts. The gifts are t- on a temporary timetable. That is to say, the gifts exist and are practiced and live for a specific length of time. That time is now. The gifts are for now. But, but they have a, an, it's not so much an expiration date as, as, as a calendar date where they cease to function. That hasn't happened, by the way. They continue. But the point is that the nature of the gifts is, is they have a beginning and an end. They function in a, in a slot of time. Love, on the other hand, is endless. Love never ends. God's love for you never began. Did you know that? God is eternal. And Ephesians tells us that before the foundation of the world, God did something in Christ. He loved you. Before you existed, God was loving you. When you live, God is loving you. And when you die, God will continue to love you. That's what Paul is trying to bring into this conversation. Look at these two things, Corinthians. They're both great. But, but, but you're so focused about this one that you've forgotten about this one. And, and meditating on this one, oh, what it's going to do for your appreciation of not only your use of gifts, but the way you walk the Christian life. Follow me closely here because this is where I get lost. That makes no sense, but just, just stick with me. So follow Paul's train of, train of thought here. Verse 9. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Right? We know in part. Gift of knowledge. We know in part now. We know something now. We prophesy in part. When? Now. So we know in part now. We prophesy in part now. But then, a moment in the future, the partial. What's the partial? Prophecy in tongues will pass away. Not in the past. Not in the now. But then. That's the timetable. Question, why, Paul? Why will the partial pass away? Is, is, is there something wrong with the partial? Is the partial deficient of some kind? Why can't the partial endure into the coming of the perfect? Paul answers his own questions. Verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Well, that's a weird answer. Okay, Paul, why did you give up childish ways when you became a man? What's the connection there, Paul? The answer is because childish ways belong to the season of life that is childhood. Childhood then gives way into adulthood. And the things of childhood don't enter the things of adulthood. 
not because they run out, not because they expire, but because the process of growing up in adulthood, the childish, the childhood things are completed. Childhood is the partial moment of human development. It's temporary, right? A human is not a fully grown human until when? Until they're an adult. So childhood is this momentary, momentary time. It has its purpose, but, but it gives way to the maturation of adulthood. That's the connection there. And I trace this argument all the way back to 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul says, But bride brothers could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants, infants in Christ. And that's what they are. They're, they're, they're still baby Christians. So the analogy is this. In the same way that childhood, its practices and experiences, its incomplete experience of humanity gives way to the complete experience of humanity by entering adulthood, so does spiritual life in this world, in the now. And its incomplete experience of spiritual life with its practices and experiences that include the gifts give way to the complete experience of spiritual life attained. Now, when is this attained? When the perfect comes. Paul, what is that? Paul, what does that mean when the perfect comes? In a nutshell, we've been pointing to it already. It's the next life. It's when... Christ returns and ushers in the eternal realities of the kingdom of God. And when he reverses the effect of sin and restores creation, not to its former state, but to its ultimate better state. In the Bible, we call this a new heavens and a new earth, where God finally unleashes his full and total plan for creation. It's that moment when, when we enter eternity, if I could say it that way. That is spiritual adulthood. And, and that moment is when the gifts cease. Because they are no longer needed. So the nature of the spiritual gifts is now, is for now. The nature of love is for always. Two key thoughts that are going to help us finish this sermon off. Because they get to the essence of why Paul is speaking to them about this. Do not make the mistake of thinking that 1 Corinthians 13 is a passage to um, solidify your position for the gifts or solidify your position against the gifts. You will abuse the passage in the same way that the Corinthians were abusing the spiritual gifts. If that is what you use this passage for, you will do what the Corinthians were doing. And that is you will ignore love. This passage is about the supremacy of love. That's what it's about. And we're going to see why. But notice two things. Number one, notice his tone. As you read 1 Corinthians 13, what do you imagine Paul's voice sounding like? I mean, we've encountered him before in the book, right? There's been segments where, where he's, he's sorrowful because of how ridiculous the Corinthians have been. 1 Corinthians 5 is particularly sharp. He did. There's one person uh, engaged in wild sexual Im immorality. And he looks at that dude in the eye and he says, you get out of my church. What do you think he sounded like in his inner monologue when, when the Holy Spirit was 
writing this? How do you think the Corinthians heard this? He's, he's not being forcefully corrective. He's, he's dangling something. He, he's, he's showing them something exquisite. He, he's, he's, he's letting them smell something glorious. He's, he's enticing them. He's, he's, he's pointing to their, their yearnings and their desires. He's inviting them to abandon themselves to visions of delight. He's, he's trying to awaken something deep in them, to stir their very affections for God. Paul knows that there's something self-evident about love for the Christian. We have experienced the love of God. It's not a mystery to us. We may not know it fully, but we have an experience of love. So this is what Paul, that's the button Paul is pushing in their heart. He's going to the Corinthians heart and saying, love of God button, click, click. So he's trying to win them over. But, but notice the effect of, the, of, of this analogy and, and, and Paul doing this. A good way to describe the spiritual gifts is spiritual gifts are momentary intrusions. And that's exciting. They're momentary intrusions of the kingdom of God into our experience. It's as if the fabric of reality were this cloth. And every now and then something pierces the cloth like a shaft of light goes. boom, And you go, whoa, look at that. That was a spiritual gift of tongues. And then it closes off. And then boom, whoa, look at that. That, that was really cool. Right? That, that, that's the spirit, the, the, the intrusion of, the, of the, the, the kingdom of God. So that's exciting. That's wonderful. That's appealing. That, that should be something we're, we're looking for. Right? I mean, who, who, who would turn their eye to that? I don't want to watch that. That's boring. I'd rather stand up life in the blackness of it and just be comforted with bad things. No, no. Spiritual gifts are good things to, 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 to look at. But, but love, love is the ultimate grace. It, it is a sampling. It is an invitation to be reminded of the eternal reality in our hearts now and forever. So Paul is trying to tell them, Corinthians, you guys are excited about the spiritual gifts. That's something to be excited of. But, but there's no room for love in your hearts. You're not excited about the love of God because you haven't been thinking about the love of God. And you haven't been thinking about the implications of the love of God. Particularly what the love of God is going to look like in the afterlife. So the effect of meditating on the endless love of God and, com- and comparing it to the temporary natures of the gift is to enhance their use and appreciation for the spiritual gifts and free them to fully enjoy them. Paul is not trying to build two mountains and the mountain of spiritual gift is this high and the mountain of love is that high. He's trying to do this. He's trying to put the spiritual gift on top of love and saying, look, when we do this, what happens? Notice, Corinthians, what happens when you activate fully the spiritual gifts with the power of love in your midst. If you think it's exciting to give a prophetic word, if you think it's exciting to see a miracle of God, if you think it's exciting to to function in the faith, Oh, Corinthians. Oh, Corinthians, you just don't know. You don't know. A couple of thoughts from um, author Robert McCullough, pastor, uh, wrote a book called Remember Death. Um, this is a sobering book, but, but you have got to read this book. My goodness. He says, the way to fully taste the sweetness of eternal life is not to pull back from enjoying the good things of this life, which the gifts would be one. 
but to leverage these things and passing pleasures into longing for the endless feast to come. The way to deal with the painful problem of loss is not to pull back from loving the transient things, but, but to press further in, to love them freely for what they are. Precious gifts of a father who loves you, foretastes of glory divine. Oh, Corinthians, Corinthians, you guys boast about running really fast and jumping really high. And you run really fast and you jump really high. But you forget that what awaits you in glory is something akin to the ability to fly. And the running and the jumping is supposed to, is supposed to make you want to fly. That's what's happening here. McCullough continues, he says, Jesus draws our attention to the grave. That's his way of saying the afterlife, eternal things. He, he likes to talk about death in his book, and it's a good thing. Jesus draws our attention to the grave to break our attachment to foolish hope in false gods, but not to pull us back from joy. He would rather return the good things of life to their proper place in our minds and hearts. They are gifts, not gods. We can open our hearts to temporary pleasures precisely because we don't give our hearts to temporary pleasures. The Corinthians' most intense mistake was they were getting from the experience of using the spiritual gifts what they should only get from the experience of the love of God in their hearts. That was the key critical mistake in their experience. They thought they had known God and levels of spiritual knowledge and practice by what the gifts felt like in their hearts. That's it. This is it. This is, this is, this is spiritual euphoria. No, 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 no. That, that's good. That's really good. Keep, keep, keep doing this. But love, love. We love the means of transport only because of our destination. For the Christian, knowing our destination unlocks a new and purer joy in the passing pleasures we experience along the way. These things that don't last don't have to. They are meant to whet our appetites. So I'm just going to skip this entire section of scripture, or, or the sermon rather. And um, some good thoughts there. You and I can engage in, in, in private later because I say some alarming things there um, that need clarification, but I just don't have time. Um, but verse 12 is where Paul goes to the heart of the matter. V verse 12 is, is Paul's knockout punch. V if, the, if, the, if the Corinthians are still not yet excited about what love is in them and will be in them, or if the Corinthians are wobbly because Paul has knocked them out, he's killed them with kindness, right? He's, this, is, this is the knockout punch. This is it. It's like, oh, I got one more, Corinthians. Look at verse 12 with me. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully Corinth was apparently a city that was famed in the ancient world for creating 
uh, brass mirrors. They would take sheets of brass and, and the metal and, and polish it up real good, and it looked like a mirror, and they were pretty good. Um, so the, we see in a mirror dimly is not a comment on the quality of their mirror. What is meant by this? Perhaps a modern um, reference will help us. Chooks, would you put that picture up on the screen? That gentleman on the right is my dad. And the smiling lady on uh, your right is my mom. And perhaps you can see on the top of that picture, there's like a little photo. And um, there's a little baby with a orange nappy thing. That's Olivia. Um, Olivia was seating back there. She went up to the family room. Olivia is uh, three months old. She was born in August. And, um, and my, my parents love Olivia. But you see, COVID, COVID is, I don't like COVID. My parents, uh, I'm from Honduras. Most of you know I wasn't born here in America. Um, I emigrated or immigrated here almost 20 years ago. I was 18 at the time, and um, my parents stayed back in Honduras. That's where they live. And they come to, to, to the U.S., and they visit, and they've met all their grandkids but one. See, my parents were in Honduras when the COVID uh, reality broke out. And um, as you know, COVID has affected the airline industry, uh, and a lot of international uh, air traffic has been canceled. Um, last time we saw our par- my parents, uh, last time they were here, was probably November of last year. Olivia was born in, in April. Um, so th- this is a common experience in our home um, where my parents get to FaceTime with Olivia. Um, I will call them and they look at me with a face like, get off the phone and show us the baby. Uh, we want to see the baby. We, we raised you. We know what you look like. I want to see the baby. And then they proceed to do what grandparents do, right? And this is not me mocking you, grandparents. I'm, I'm rejoicing with you. But the, you guys turn into blithering fools. You know, I get And so part of why the picture looks the way it is is because I was trying to tell them. He's like, guys, I'm, I need a picture. Can you stay still? They're like, oh, shut up, Ronald. Still with the baby. So, so I try to take, you know, screenshots as, as best as I can. You see, right now, right now, my mom and dad see Olivia dimly. Not through a glass mirror, but through a phone screen. They they see her. They, they, They know her. But look at verse 12 again. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully. For we now see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. I talked to my parents yesterday and they said that the airport is hopefully going to be opening up at the end of the month and they may have a flight here to the States uh, sometime late September. So late September, my mom and my dad are going to burst into my house and unleash loving kisses on their granddaughter. They're going to know her face to face. That experience, what I just shared with you, is what Paul is appealing to. 
You know God right now. You do. You love God and you know God's love for you right now. If you didn't, you wouldn't be saved. But you know it dimly. You, you know it partially. When the perfect comes, you will know it completely. Paul is pressing on them the reality that there's a time coming when each one of you, dear church members that we love so much, are going to stare into the living eyes, the flaming eyes of the eternal majestic one. And you know what you will not do? You will not flinch. You will not cower. You will not feel the bitter sting of shame that we do now. You will not do what Adam and Eve did when God is looking for them. The God who breathed life into them. Can you see what Adam saw the first thing he saw when God breathed life into him? He saw God's eyes. When he sins, he runs from God. And this continues all through scripture. Prophets like Isaiah, when they behold a, a partial revelation of God, they're like, woe is me, I am undone. I can't take it, God. M Moses jams himself on a rock. He's like, I'm going to grab on this mountain because the glory of God that's passing before me is too much for me to behold. Time and time again in the New Testament, when, when, when his faithful apostles witness something about God, John the Revelator falls down as if dead. But in heaven, in the he new heavens and a new earth, we will stare into utter perfect love for us. And run into it. And embrace it. Listen to the book of Revelation. Last book in the Bible. Last chapters in the Bible. Says then the angel showed me the river of life. The water of life. John gets a, gets a vision of what's going to happen. What this is going to look like. Brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street. Also on either side of the river. The tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit. Yielding its fruit each month. Notice how the senses will be stimulated beyond comprehension. There's a river flowing, a gorgeous river flowing and, and glorious fruit of trees with, with flavors we can't even begin to comprehend. The leaves of the trees were there for the healing of the nation. So provision, endless provision. No longer will there be anything accursed. There's, there's nothing we'll be ashamed of or afraid of. Nothing out there to hurt us, nothing out there to harm us, nothing to run away from. No longer will anything be accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. We'll have true justice reigning. We'll have a holy God leading people in faithful ways. And his servants will worship him. But the one thing, the one exciting thing, the, the one thing Paul wants to point them to, of all the glory of heaven, 
of all the expectation that's to come for us, of all our desires that, that are stirred when we think of the eternal state, one thing, Revelation 22, verse 4, they will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun. For the Lord will be their light. And they will reign forever and forever. But this is the the greatest experience we can imagine. The highest joy we will experience. The most exciting event we can dream of. The most satisfying moment of our existence. The one thing we will never bore of, tire of, or sense becoming stale. The one surpassing reality that exceeds all of our wildest dreams and exhausts the ability of all the languages to describe. The one thing we all want most. If I were to ask each of you, what do you want most in life? Most of you, if not all of you, would connect desires with relationship. You would say, I want to be known. I want someone to know who I am and love me. And not reject me. I don't want to be alone. I, I, want, I want to be loved. I, I desire communion with someone. We will endlessly experience and enjoy that moment. When we see God face to face. And are known by him. The eternal state. Heaven. The moment when we are ushered into the glory of God is more than an experience. It'll be an endless encounter with God. It'll be a relationship that grows and grows and grows where love is at the center of that relationship. And your ability to finally know God's love will come into full effect. This is what Paul is lifting up in front of them. Is that Corinthians... This is what you're missing out. This is what you're abandoning by sinfully focusing on something that's not bad. The gifts are not bad, but you're doing it wrong. Let me end with a quote by faithful Anglican minister J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer is a man who's influenced many of us on staff and the elders. Um, he, he, we jokingly mentioned his book, Knowing God, that God's, uh, God's going to require the reading of that book in, the, in life to, ha- to enter eternal life. Um, J.I. Packer is experiencing this reality now. He passed away last week, I think is 94, 95 years old. And he wrote this. He said, what matters supremely, therefore, is not in the last analysis, the fact that I know God. But the larger fact which underlines it, the fact that he knows me. I am graven on the palms of his hands. I I am never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in in knowing me. I I know him because he first knew me and, and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me. There's no moment when his eye is off of me or, or his attention is distracted from me. And no moment, therefore, when his care falters. This is momentous knowledge. Corinthians, this is the knowledge you're supposed to have and experience. There is unspeakable comfort. that The, the, the sort that energizes, be it said, not, not exhausts or enervates. 
in knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me in love and watching over me for my good. There is tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me in the way I am so often disillusioned about myself. Do you find yourself agreeing with yourself that you're a wretch? Do you find yourself disappointed with yourself about what you've done and who you've done it to? Do you find yourself moments in life incapable of letting go something that you know you're guilty of? Regardless of what you're told, regardless of knowing the truth of Scripture, but do, do you find on the one hand, your companion called shame and his twin brother, guilt. Do you find them walking with you? Nothing can disillusion God about you. Packard continues, he says, and the way I'm so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. There is certainly great cause for humility in the thought that he sees all the twisted things about me that my fellow human beings do not see. And I am glad. And that he sees more corruption in me than that which I see in myself. You're actually worse than you think you are. There is, however, equally great incentive to worship and love God in the thought that for some unfathomable reason he wants me as his friend and desires to be my friend and has given his son to die in order to realize this purpose. Eric, you can come back up. So last application, church, for you. Do you meditate on the eternal things? Do the temporary things of this life, the good things, the spiritual things, have they made you forget about love and eternity with God? Do you, do you desire to go to heaven because of its promises? Or do you desire to go to heaven because of the Savior who's there? Let's stand together. We'll pray and, and Eric will close us off with the song. Let's pray. Father, that your love for us would be as a large stone being dropped in the ocean. And our hearts be that ocean, Lord. Let your love descend to the depths of our beings and land, Lord, on the very seedbed of who we are, Lord. 
and that it would land, O oh Lord, and cause cataclysmic rearrangement, Lord, and unsettlement of preferences and focuses and ideas and philosophies. Will it change the landscape on top of that water? Lord, would mountains grow? Lord, would islands be formed? Would, would peninsulas give way to the water? Would you change us, oh God? Would you lift our eyes to the heavens that we might see your glory? This might be an unfamiliar song to some of you guys, but just would encourage you to think about these lyrics about the anticipation that they uh, they help us to long for that day when we get to see the Lord's face. Though the dark is overwhelming and the brightest lights grow dim Though the word of God is trampled on by foolish men Though the wicked never stumble and abound in every place we will all be humbled when we see your face and the enemies were fighting those without and those within will be underneath our feet to never rise again all our sins will be behind us through the blood of christ erased and we'll taste your kindness when we see your face Will be 
our longing for that day. Increase the anticipation. Increase the expectation, Lord, that we'll be with you, that we'll know love, not just through a glass or mirror dimly, Lord, but we'll, we'll see you. We'll finally experience the fullness of your love and glory. We love you, God.